There are few who would disagree with the statement that there was an immense social and political tumult in the United States over the past year and a half. It seemed like every corner of American life was dominated by tribalism and animosity. Political discussions deteriorated into personal attacks from both aisles. State turned against state, and many left their home state completely in an effort to escape what they viewed as an unhealthy trajectory and an inevitably disastrous end. Nuanced social concerns were reduced to black and white issues, driving a wedge between groups and individuals who would otherwise bring about needed reform. And so it continues. Caught in the middle of all this are Christians, particularly evangelicals. With a tent as large as evangelical Christianity, it's no surprise that Christians have found themselves on opposite, even opposing sides. With the help of those who claim the identity of evangelical or those who are associated with the movement, evangelical Christianity garnered a particular reputation during the previous presidency, exposing or causing rifts in many pockets of the movement. Public theologian Dr. Russell Moore joins us on this episode to help us think through evangelicalism in this era. What is the state of evangelicalism and evangelical witness in the United States? How fractured is American evangelical Christianity along socio-political lines? On political and cultural issues, are evangelical Christians dying on the wrong hills? Can we recover the kind of witness early evangelicals, like William Wilberforce had, in our own socio-political climate? How can evangelical Christians, whichever side of the aisle they're on, move forward? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the Pews. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're a forum for discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. Hey, thanks for joining us. And uh, today we're joined by Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore is public theologian at Christianity Today and director of Christianity Today's Public Theology Project. He's the author of several books, including The Courage to Stand, Facing Your Fear Without Losing Your Soul, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, and The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. A native of uh, a native Mississippian, he and his wife Maria are the parents of five sons. Dr. Moore, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, uh, maybe just, uh, just in terms of uh, introductory questions, uh, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, your education and how you came to be in the role of public theologian you're currently in, which is maybe not a title that uh, many people or uh, our audience are familiar with? Uh, yes, I'm uh, originally from Biloxi, Mississippi, and have been working for the last um, 25 years in uh, Christian ministry in various ways, in church ministry, in academia. Um, I was a, a provost and a dean of a theological seminary for many years, uh, and then served as head of uh, the public policy arm of a denomination, uh, and now I'm serving at Christianity Today in a multi-denominational uh, context where what we are uh, seeking to do is, as we put it, lift up the storytellers and sages of the global church uh, through a variety of uh, 
of means. And my uh, part of that is in uh, producing uh, content that uh, relates a, a theological vision of Christianity to the tumultuous uh, culture that uh, we all find ourselves in right now. Okay. Well, well, great. That actually answers my other uh, question as well about uh, about uh, the Public Theology Project. Uh, are there any specific goals maybe that, that you hope to accomplish, uh, you know, in the role that you're currently in with with that project? Yes, we're we're working on um, on rolling out uh, audio content, video content, and also uh, events, uh, helping people to think through uh, various issues. So, uh, for instance, uh, working with our Big Tent initiative at CT several weeks ago, we did a webinar on just making sense of the controversy around critical race theory. Um, and then before that, we had done an event, a uh, live event here in Nashville uh, that Beth Moore and I did together about how to, how to think through church hurt and when to stay and when to leave and, and those sorts of uh, questions. So we're going to be exploring uh, all of those issues that have a, a theological angle to them, which is almost everything right now. Mm. That's great. Well, what we want to talk um, about with you today is the is the state of evangelicalism and evangelical witness um, in a in the post-Trump presidency uh, in the USA. Um, not going into a political discussion, but in, germ- in terms of you know a chronological uh, time frame, uh, you know the post-Trump era. Um, you know, evangelical yeah. Christianity has garnered a particular reputation uh, during that presidency in the four years of his term. Exposed or caused rifts in a lot of pockets of the movement. Uh, so we want to talk to you about how evangelical Christians can move forward. You know, whatever side of the aisle they find themselves on. Um, so maybe as as a way to to begin that discussion, can you maybe provide some commentary of how, in your view, the general population came to view um, evangelical Christianity's place in American politics and society? Well, I think it's fair to say if if one asked a random person on the street what comes to mind when you think of uh, the word evangelical, uh, that person would probably say something related to electoral politics. Uh, that has uh, that has been the case for a, a while in certain sectors. So, uh, I mean, I remember in 2014, 2015, uh, talking to secular media and and expressing the frustration that uh, that many of them saw evangelicalism as mostly a voting uh, block. And I, I said at one point, uh, some of you act as though evangelical Christianity is like a, a group of cicadas that go into dormancy in between Iowa caucuses when there's so much more uh, to evangelical Christianity than that. Well, uh, that has certainly been uh, exacerbated over the past um, over the past five years, uh, with uh, some people. I mean, one of the the major questions that I often get is, well, why should we use even use the word uh, evangelical anymore when it's become a a political uh, a term? Uh, even with people who might agree with the politics uh, involved, but who will say that's not what I'm trying to do uh, in terms of my Christian witness. Uh, that has happened. And then we also have studies uh, showing that there are other people who don't go to church and, and don't uh, participate in religious life, but who would claim themselves as evangelicals mm-hmm. because they're 
because of the way that they vote and the, the sort of fervency that they have for a political candidate. Mm. Uh, that is that that's not an entirely new phenomenon. It's it's rooted in something older, but uh, the extent is certainly new. Mm. Yeah, that's I guess that's kind of the, the direction of our next question, which uh, it seems like the past five years, uh, as kind of as you stated, things have come into view uh, more clearly for a lot of people of, uh, or just for the general population of how they view evangelicals. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, just with your interaction with cultural political leaders, um, how would you say in the last five years that reputation rep- reputation has changed or you know morphed? Um, yeah, I mean, especially like we said in the beginning, kind of post Trump. Well, yeah, well, I think I think some of it is going to have to to do with how close someone might be uh, to actual evangelical Christianity. Sure. Um, how how someone is going to view it, but I, I do know that. Uh, there have been campus ministries, for instance, that have had to drop the word evangelical from their name, not because they're embarrassed about uh, evangelical Christianity, but because it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when they're they're trying to talk to unchurched, uh, secular background people, they just assume that this is a, a political uh, mm-hmm. club, and sure. they, you know they're trying to do evangelism and discipleship, and they have to they have to use a different word. So that's a uh, that's a different reality, and my own view is that um, at first I was saying in the summer, I think of 2016, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying I don't even want to call myself uh, evangelical uh, mm-hmm. anymore sure. because it's it's meant to be shorthand, and you have to if you have to explain uh, what you mean by that, then it's really not shorthand mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. But I've changed my mind on that, and and largely because there's not a good alternative. Uh, that can explain uh, who who we are, what kind of Christians we are, and also because um, the word is too good. I mean, it's, it's rooted in uh, good news, and I think we just have to show a different way and and actually be that kind of people. And that that you know, to the again to the extent this is new, but uh, we've seen this before. I mean, when uh, Billy Graham and and Carl Henry started creating the post World War II. Uh, evangelical institutions, they were considered to be fundamentalists Mm -hmm. because fundamentalist initially had just meant someone who believes the foundational truths of the faith, uh, the truthfulness of the Bible, the bodily resurrection, the miracles, so forth. Uh, But they they had to do something different than the kind of fundamentalism that had taken on um, some secondary and tertiary issues as a matter of identity and a kind of uh, fighting spirit, angry fighting spirit, mm-hmm. uh, those sorts of things. What what Graham and others did was not to fight for the soul of fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they pointed out what had happened and how that happened, and then they did something new. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's I think that's really what we should be doing now. Mm-hmm. How much of the the confusion that you were just talking about in terms of, you know, what evangelicals are and what they stand for, um, yeah, how much of that confusion is self-inflicted um, or or how much of the, that confusion is, um, you know, as some would put, uh, the, the fault of the media? Um, I think that the the confusion there is uh, is almost entirely uh, self-inflicted. I mean, obviously, 
uh, secular people in the outside world are not going to understand everything about us and and know uh, who we are. That's that's the status quo in in every uh, era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a kind of uh, it, it's almost as though in evangelicalism we've taken on the worst of both worlds of being a majority and a minority. Uh, so there's a sense of being a majority in the sense of, well, we are the real America, and uh, therefore we should be uh, setting the agenda and, and running the country uh, with a sort of uh, persecution victimhood idea of uh, a small group of people who are being oppressed by a larger uh, cultural society. When in reality, neither of those two things, uh, neither, neither is exactly true. Uh, instead, uh, if you define us uh, theologically, um, I think that we are a distinct minority, and that's not a new development in American life. That's That's been the, the case uh, all along, uh, so that when people talk about a post-Christian America, uh, as an evangelical, if I, if I were a mainline Protestant, then that that might make sense. But as an evangelical Christian, I have to say, well, what what I mean by Christianity includes the new birth Mm -hmm. and uh, personal experience with Christ, which means we don't have a post-Christian America. We've never had a Christian America. Uh, If if anything, we're a pre-Christian America. Um, and so there ought to be a sense of confidence in the power of the gospel that we we sometimes don't don't see uh, in evangelical Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. Um, I guess we kind of have a, a bit of a two part question coming up here, um, but I guess like internally, so within you know the evangelical movement, I guess how fractured do you see? Um, the just the church and i guess that's along like racial lines um but also education level lines uh, there's a lot of uh so I, i'm not in chicago anymore but we used to both live in chicago uh and there's very different types of churches um you know there's kind of the more affluent progressive you know college educated church um who you know might lean more left i guess politically um and then there's also you know the more I guess, just conservative, right-leaning churches. Um, so I guess, do you see that internal kind of fracture as something that can be smoothed over relatively easy, or is that something that needs to be addressed quickly and is like, you know, not a, a real problem? Well, I don't see the fracturing of evangelicalism as a, as a problem. Uh, I see the fracturing of the church, capital C, as being a problem, and that's a problem that uh, the Apostle Paul's warned about going all the way back to to 1 Corinthians. Um, So the fracturing of the church and lack of unity within the church is is a problem. Lack of unity within evangelicalism, which is a renewal movement within the broader body of Christ, uh, actually I think is a necessary uh, development Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that I think it's a it's a mistake to have a battle for the soul of evangelicalism and who gets to be uh, called the word. And so I I don't think that's a a fruitful uh, task. Instead, it should be, well, before one's own master, does one stand or fall? And uh, we're, we're called then to, to do the things that we think evangelicalism ought to be. 
mm-hmm. which which includes some learning some lessons of what happened before. And I think many of us have have uh, seen that there was in some instances a unity that was illusory. And in some instances, there was a disunity that was illusory. Mm-hmm. And so there are, are people who, uh, David Frum uses the, the term revealed preference, where it, he's using it in a political context, but it applies here too, where you have people who think, well, we're, we're on the same page, not just in terms of what we think, but also in terms of what we think is important and mm-hmm. what's not important. And recent years have shown that often that's just not the case, mm-hmm. which is why people uh, can can look at one another and uh, both use the metaphor of invasion of the body snatchers or something like that mm-hmm. and can say, what happened to so-and-so? Sure. Um, I mean, that's that's just how that uh, how that happened mm-hmm. um, in terms of uh, in terms of the church. I think we always have to be uh, working toward a a unity of the church in a common common mission. Um, there are going to be uh, different uh, emphases. There's going to be a, a lack of um, there, there's not going to be uniformity. Uh, within the church. So in a similar way to the way that the Apostle Paul talks about um, about one body with many members, I think that, that within the church, there are many different expressions of the church, and we, we need each other. Mm-hmm. So I think of um, uh, Richard Mao had a metaphor that uh, comes to mind just about every day when he's talking about denominations. And he said, uh, denominations are not themselves a sign of disunity. They're more like monastic vows, uh, where if you were a Franciscan monk, you are, you are vowing to emphasize mm-hmm. the duty to the poor. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that Benedictine mon- monks don't care about the poor. Sure. It's that that's your job as a Franciscan mm-hmm. to see to it that the Benedictines and everyone else uh, cares about this. And that denominational traditions are often the same. So the the Lutherans have taken a monastic vow to emphasize justification by faith, and the mm-hmm. Presbyterians have taken a monastic vow to emphasize the sovereignty of God, and the Baptists have taken a monastic vow to emphasize the need for personal regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that actually, those different points of emphasis uh, actually can help the whole body. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I don't think that that's necessarily, I, th- I think what the problem right now is that you have a fracturing of every institution um, and of, of virtually every group of people. That's when that is showing up in the church as it is, that's where the, the danger zone is. of the disunity that you're, you're just talking about within denominations or among denominations regarding those emphases, um, how much of that is just due to a, a misunderstanding of, uh, of the what and the why different denominations are emphasizing those matters? Do you think there's people are just um, talking... Um, talking past one another for certain reasons or i mean how, how would you kind of uh kind of diagnose that 
Yeah, you mean in terms of the the reason why there are different denominational traditions? No, not not the the reason why, but in terms of um, people are so up in arms about okay, well we can't do ministry with this particular denomination because they're emphasizing in this uh, oh, socio political yeah. issue. We can't get behind that. How much of mm-hmm. that is just because maybe that particular denomination isn't really, um, I don't know, maybe viewing that that emphasis with with through eyes of grace or, or really seeking to understand why they're doing that well often uh, that of course uh, is the case uh, sometimes what's happening is just that people are saying uh, in order to carry out ministry together we have to be honest about where some of our differences are uh, so that you don't have uh, for instance a congregation that's saying um, in order to be part of um, the body of Christ, you have to have our view of what baptism is. Mm-hmm. But instead can say there are different Christian views about what baptism is, and we can have that debate, and we can have that argument, but we can't have it um, you know, in between the last hymn and when a baby's being uh, baptized. You, know, <laughs> that, that, you can't do that then. <laughs> and so often some of those separations are, are due to that. Mm. And then some of it is due to human uh, tribalism and carnality. I am of Paul, and uh, I am of Cephas, and I am of Apollos. I mean, that, that's been the case. That's the pull and the temptation uh, all along. The difference is, the problem is trying to differentiate between those two things. Um, so it's, uh, are we, Paul and Silas, uh, saying we can't, agree on how to carry out this mission and and with whom to do it. And so we're just going to both of us bless each other's ministries Mm -hmm. and work and and work separately. Uh, Or do we have that kind of um, dividing up of the body? Sometimes it's not hard. It's not easy to see that Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way that it's often not easy to see when anger is um, a vindictive, uh, sinful self-exaltation, uh, and when it is an expression of righteousness and justice. It's, it's sometimes people confuse the two, and the end result is, is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as a follow-up to that, then, in terms of you know, political and cultural issues, are Christians dying on the wrong hills or choosing the wrong battles to fight? In, in many cases, uh, they are, and, and here's the reason why they are. It, it's because I think that we're in a time where politics uh, overwhelms everything. Mm-hmm. And so politics is, is, uh, is at the present moment um, seen as being a vehicle for telling the world who I am and uh, giving meaning and purpose to my life and sorting out the sheep from the goats. Uh, in the in the world around me, and of course, politics was never intended uh, to bear that uh, weight and that burden, which is why the end result of it is a burning out and cynicism and and disillusionment uh, there. So that's that's a, a unique uh, problem, and and the other problem is that uh, often what we're doing because we're so often shaped uh, by those sort of immediate kinds of uh, loyalties, we then end up being um, sort of um, Kyperians when we want to be an Anabaptist when we don't. Uh, so uh, for instance, I had someone 
um, who said this wasn't a this wasn't a Christian, but it was a, a religious uh, religiously observant person who would disagree with me on some things, who said to me uh, the other day, "Well, you are uh, opposed to abortion, which I am." And he said, "Why would you seek to impose your religion on everyone else?" And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not. I mean, the difference, the, the argument that you and I have is whether we're talking about one person or two people. Um, I see two vul- two vulnerable people, mm-hmm. and we need to protect both of them, including uh, including their their lives. Um, and, and you see one person who is making uh, making a unitary decision. That's where our argument is." Mm-hmm. I said, and I can tell you one of the reasons why I see uh, this uh, this vulnerable person is because what the scripture teaches about the nature of vulnerability and the nature of, um, of viability and dependence and all of those things. And he said, well, yeah, but isn't that imposing that view on someone else? And I said, well, when I said that uh, the, the scripture speaking to us about the way that we ought to care for uh, the vulnerable should change the way that we see uh, migrant children at the border. Uh, you didn't have a problem with that. That wasn't imposing my viewpoint on someone else. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, and, and the reverse is then often, uh, often the case as well. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a, uh, it, it's really kind of uh, amazing to me sometimes to hear people who can uh, get up and pontificate on every culture war uh, issue possible. And then when the issue is racial justice, say, why are you bringing politics in here? Uh, and it's, it's also the same thing when you have people who uh, are, are emphasizing uh, justice and rightly so, and emphasizing vulnerability and rightly so, but who don't want to talk about it when it relates to abortion, not mm-hmm. because they have a, a, a different view of vulnerability. It's because that would that would separate you out in terms of your uh, people. People would say, well, you're part of that tribe mm-hmm. rather than the other. Well, mm-hmm. these things aren't meant to be tribal uh, divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things are, are meant to be, uh, here's how the scripture is telling me to love God and to love neighbor. We're not always going to get that right. We're going to have differences about how to apply that, but that's what we ought to be seeking to do rather than simply saying, well, where am I supposed to be? Mm-hmm. And, and let me try to do that. I th- the the oh, accusation okay. gets thrown around like you're, you're making, you know, X issue um, tantamount to, to a gospel uh, issue. Um, uh, or I, I think a lot of it has to do with, well, it, it's a matter of seeing how this particular issue is an outworking of how I understand the gospel and how God is changing um, uh, individuals and establishing his kingdom. Um, and well, they, that's part of it. And the other part of it is um, in order to call people to repentance, and I don't just mean sort of uh, the, the, the beginning call to repentance and, and to follow in Christ, but that ongoing repentance, we have to talk about uh, what is what is there to be repented of, uh, what is sin. We know how to do that usually on the personal level. Mm. So we know that uh, if someone says, well, um, I don't, because we don't have a position on whether or not parents should take their kids trick-or-treating. Uh, 
That means that we can't have a, a position on whether or not people host orgies. Mm. You're going to say, no, those are two completely different, uh, different uh, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're able to differentiate between those, those two things. Mm-hmm. And so a, a congregation that says, uh, well, uh, Scripture has spoken very, very clearly to, for instance, uh, racial partiality and to uh, injustice against uh, the vulnerable. So that's we, we don't have the option uh, to whether or not we're going to listen to that. That's in the inerrant word of God. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to have a position on um, the minimum wage mm-hmm. uh, or what it should be. You know, there are, we just know how to do that better, I think, with personal issues than we do with social issues, because often the personal issues aren't as, aren't as important in terms of sorting out who's in what, who's in what herd. That's really good. Yeah. And that's, I mean, one of the things that we're world outspoken and uh, this podcast is doing is to try to obviously not eliminating kind of the individual component within Christianity and individual mm-hmm. repentance and that kind of thing, but also emphasizing the communal aspect and the, um, yeah, I guess the social responsibility that the church finds itself in as the people of God. Mm-hmm. Um, even looking back to the old Testament and seeing the reasons why Israel was exiled, you know, one, uh, not, o- not observing the covenant and then two, you know, oppressing a lot of that led to the oppression of, of vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, is that something that, that you're stressing, stressing in, in the work that you're doing is, uh, especially in America or in the West, you know, our individualist culture, it's everything's about me and, and my enjoyment or, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, do you think that that's something that the church needs to, to get back to is more of a communal view of, of not just sin, but repentance and, and uh, reconciliation, uh, even like, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. Well, I think I might see it a little differently because uh, I really don't think that our problem is individualism sure. uh, in, in the American church. I think our problem is a collectivism uh, in the American church that actually squelches a, a truly uh, biblical understanding of individualism in community. Sure. So what you end up with is a, a sense of... Um, uh, as you know, Kierkegaard said, uh, people aren't afraid of holding a, a wrong opinion. They're afraid of holding a right opinion alone. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that is, I, I think that is certainly true. And so you can have people who think that they're rugged individualists when actually they're just part of a hive mind. And uh, social media has only uh, exacerbated that. Sure. So for, for me, what I think we have to do is to constantly be emphasizing both the personal and individual aspects of life before before God, your life sure. uh, before God, and the communal, you are part of a community that then shapes and forms you to participate in other communities. Mm-hmm. So that, um, as Ken Myers uh, said years ago, the most important question that we have to answer is what we mean when we say we first. Sure. What do we, and, and if that is in terms of an ideology or a generational cohort or uh, something else, then then that that is very different from a Christian understanding of we 
being part of uh, the the global body of Christ that's connected to uh, the body of Christ in in heaven, uh, and and is united together by the head, mm-hmm. as a head and a body. I think I think that's where we we tend to run off ground. Sure, no, it's helpful. Yeah, that's very helpful. Just a just a quick shift here. Um, I, I warned you earlier uh, that in the middle of our uh, of our episodes, when we have a guest on, we like to do a section that we're now calling "Quick Takes." Um, basically, just five short, lighthearted questions, just so that we and our audience can get to know you uh, a little bit better. Um, so, are you ready for these five questions? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. So, number one: coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Hmm. That's fair. And a lot of it. <laughs> I'm more of a water. Just a water guy. <laughs> Healthy. Um, uh, number two, Marvel or DC? This might be a little bit more controversial. Uh, 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 DC, uh, but I, I'm going to qualify it. I'm a, I'm a DC Comics guy, but uh, I do acknowledge that when it comes to the movies, not the not the comics mm-hmm. themselves, but the movies, that they're the MCU has done a better job, all in all, than the DCU. And a friend of mine and I have this argument all the time. But I, but and the reason yes. is because I do think that the DC um, mythos is is superior. Not that it's either or, but I, I think right. it's so. Uh, valuable that it hasn't really been adequately uh, dealt with mm. in in yeah. film. That's a lot of people's experiences. They grew up with DC. They n- usually know DC better, but mm-hmm. then yeah, these the most recent movies have kind of ruined it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and if you if you um, if you look at uh, th- there's someone who sort of rightly pointed out if you look at the the individual characters usually the defining moment in dc comics is something that happens in infancy or childhood Mm -hmm. usually the defining moment in marvel is something that happens in adolescence Mm -hmm. and that 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 sort of you know i mean you Mm -hmm. need both of those things but that's a a difference in in feel sure that's interesting so even you know x-men mutants that's really based off of feeling of being out of step in mm-hmm. adolescence and, right. and of course spider-man and and so forth mm. so hmm. yeah that's true i never thought about <laughs> that way for me it's just this the marvel at least the cinematic universe those stories are just so those stories were just told more masterfully i think than um in the dc, the DC universe but that's a that's a hot take um, <laughs> question number three: Do you have any hidden or interesting talents, or or maybe hobbies? 
Uh, I have no hidden talents. I don't even think that I have all the talents that are not hidden. Uh, so I, I don't think there's anything really hidden there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, all right. Number four, Thanksgiving is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, this episode will be releasing at the, at the beginning of November. Um, is there a particular dish or maybe dishes without which a Thanksgiving meal for you would be incomplete? Mm, I mean, uh, our Thanksgiving meals are always probably the most boring uh, uh, meals that we have because they're so standard and typical pecan <laughs> pie all the way uh, all sure. the way down. Um, it would be more at Christmas um, if there's not oyster stew uh, because huh. my grandfather always made uh, oyster stew uh, Christmas Eve night. And uh, when he died, the absence of that happening was... Mm really felt wow i've never even heard of oysters too same <laughs> is that a southern dish i feel like because i well uh, i mean I, I grew up in coastal mississippi on the sure <laughs> on the gulf of mexico and that's yeah, yeah that, that makes sense, makes sense what yeah. we have there um a final question for quick takes um you often talk about c.s lewis's chronicles of narnia what is the correct mm -hmm. order to read them in uh very easy you start with the lion the witch and the wardrobe and uh, you do not start with the magician's <laughs> nephew. And I, I, I am able to, if you talk about separating people out into <laughs> sheep and goats, I'm able to tell uh, immediately whether someone knows how to read a text on the basis of whether they say lion, witch, and wardrobe or magician's <laughs> nephew. Because the, uh, the magician's nephew, the only way that it works as a narrative is with this sense of aha. Mm -hmm. So that's where the lamppost is coming from. I mean, that's uh, that, that's that's how it it has its. Uh, it's not meant to go the other way. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, where you're not you're not meant to think uh, when when Lucy comes out of the wardrobe into this snowy scene with the lamppost you're meant to be as confused as she is. Mm -hmm. and, and when you start hearing about a witch and a lion, you're meant to be as confused as she is. And then things gradually become more and more clear. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't agree sure. with you more. To that, I say amen. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, um, kind of in the beginning, we were talking about more diagnostic, you know, what's going on with the situation in uh, kind of the evangelical world in the United States. Um, and now we're hoping to switch gears to more of a, you know, kind of where do we go from here? Um, and we've touched on a few of these things in the conversation, uh, but hopefully we can talk a little bit more uh, in a little bit more depth. Um, we talked about the the term evangelical, um, and a lot of people are questioning, yeah, whether whether it is still a useful term. Um, one group that's interesting is uh, like the ex-evangelicals, I believe mm -hmm. that, that they call themselves. Uh, and the kind of the thing with with that group is uh, it's really diverse. So you have people who 
are hardly Christians. Um, other people who just uh, kind of like you were were stating earlier uh, don't like being associated with the political nature of the word um, right. evangelical. Yeah. So I guess uh, what can you say to those who are kind of uh, struggling with their evangelical identity, but are committed to, you know, kind of just the Christian witness, you know, uh, the biblical message. Uh, and then also those who are considering just, just, you know, leaving the faith entirely considering what they've seen over the past four or five years. Well, uh, let me start with the second part of it first. Sure. Um, because I, I think, um, I, I can understand, uh, all of the people in that, in that situation. As a matter of fact, the Bible uh, recognizes uh, those sorts of situations with um, with uh, the language you have made the the nations to blaspheme, speaking to the people of God because mm -hmm. of their uh, mm -hmm. their conduct. Um, so I understand that uh, when we're and and as a matter of fact, uh, long before there was a a term exvangelical, I was a fifteen year old uh, sort of standing at that door and mm -hmm. trying to decide. Uh, which way I would go. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis helped me help me go through a different way. Mm -hmm. But um, but I think we have to understand that. What I would say to somebody who is thinking about walking away and abandoning the faith is to say, uh, if you decide I do not want to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, I've counted the cost, and I don't want to be with him, then that's your decision to, to make. Um, but don't confuse a Jesus of Nazareth with whatever manifestation uh, of his name that you have seen necessarily, mm -hmm. especially when if you spend time in the Gospels, um, one of the things that you're going to see is that Jesus not only is fully aware of what, uh, of what awful things can happen in his name, uh, he also warns about that uh, repeatedly. I mean, he, he's he's constantly rebuking his own disciples every step of the way uh, for the way that they're misunderstanding and misapplying uh, and, and sometimes even reacting with a kind of meanness uh, that he doesn't recognize in the Samaritan village, for instance. Um, and then he warns you about, about what this uh, can look like and then certainly does uh, in the, the opening of chapters of Revelation, speaking to churches that are uh, losing their witness and their, their lampstand. I mean, if you were in the Laodicean church, uh, you might well conclude Christianity's a fraud. Mm. I'm, I, I'm walking away because of what I've seen. What you don't understand is that Jesus is standing there saying the Laodicean church is a fraud mm. and, and needs sure. to uh, repent. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, I think, the, the, the issue, is make mm -hmm. sure that you're actually, um, you're actually wanting to walk away from Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And what may mean is that you are in a, a toxic environment uh, and you need to be in a different environment uh, with, with a, a different community of people. Uh, that may well be the case. Mm -hmm. uh, but for, for people who would say, I just... Um, I think of myself as an ex-evangelical because I don't like the political uh, or or the scandals and and everything else. I mean, I don't think there's anything uh, particularly holy about the word uh, evangelical. Mm. 
And so if somebody is loving Jesus, uh, is embedded within a church community, is is serving uh, God and neighbor, I don't really care what they call themselves. Sure. Uh, it's, it's It really is just a shorthand to say, um, I had um, a, I teach a class on a, a secular college campus and um, most of my students are not, are not Christians. And I had uh, Tim Keller with me one week um, yeah. as a guest there. And one of the students said, why would you all even, even take the word evangelical when it's come to mean all of these awful things? Yeah. And Tim's answer, I think I'll remember uh, forever because he said, um, well, it's because most of us are in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and the mm-hmm. North Americans uh, don't aren't entitled just to change what we're called just because we've messed up the word in our context. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's uh, you. You could see the student just sort of shake his head like, "Fair enough." Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's I think that's right. And then there's a there's a, a relatively uh, well not relatively is a new book called uh, "Struggling with Evangelicalism." that um, I, I review in the next issue of Christianity Today, mm-hmm. the December issue. And one of the things in there that I really hadn't thought about, I don't think, is that sometimes the refusal to, to bear the name evangelical can be a kind of refusal of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So like it or not, uh, we're often lumped in uh, with mm-hmm. people who are doing and saying things that, uh, that, that we find reprehensible mm. and you can't, we, we can't just simply say, Oh, well, yes, but that's not our problem. Mm. Uh, sure. yeah, it actually is our problem. What's, what's taking place uh, in our name. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Ooh. As a follow up, uh, as a follow up to that, you know, for, for those individuals who, who maybe aren't so much pondering whether to leave the faith as a whole, um, but maybe they're struggling to decide whether to, to stay and reform existing, you know, Christian institutions, denominations, what have you, um, or leave those institutions and join or, or maybe even create um, something which they believe is, is more faithful to the Bible. What would you say to, to someone like that? Well, I would say that a great deal of that is going to depend upon the person because what I'm going to want to know is, are you the kind of person whose typical temptation is to quit mm. and to uh, walk away? Or are you the kind of person whose typical um, temptation is to conform and to uh, show, show undue loyalty in cases where loyalty is not mm. due? Mm. That's going to tell you quite a bit about uh, about how you are evaluating this situation. And it's a hard decision to make. And um, I mean, I've had to make it. And you've had, and, and it, is, it is a really difficult thing. And I think that the difficulty is good mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know, the poet uh, David White uh, said, nostalgia is not really a being rooted in the past. Nostalgia is a sign that the past as you've known it is coming to an end. And so I think that some of that difficulty uh, when it is necessary or when it seems necessary is because of the gratitude for what's genuinely good. Mm -hmm. And so there are, 
my, my friend Beth Moore says uh, it's it's better to leave sad than to leave mad. Hmm. And I think that's true. And so I think there are there are some people who stay in an institution too long to the point that they become cynical. And then maybe the rest of their life is about how I'm not this or I'm not that. Uh, when actually, if they had said, okay, well, this isn't a healthy environment for me, and I'm going to serve Christ somewhere else, they, it actually would be easier for them to love mm. those people who introduced him, introduced them to Christ. I would say just be, just be checking your motives. Right. And certainly, if you find yourself in a church situation where what you hear yourself saying is, if you don't do this, I'm out of here. Um, that sort of threatening uh, is usually not a sign of, of health. Mm. Uh, and if you're in a church situation where you start justifying awful things because you say otherwise, uh, you know, our ministry is not going to go forward, mm. check yourself because that is going to lead you into some awful things. Mm. Yeah, I guess one of the, or I guess one of the uh, tensions is um, the question of how much importance kind of social issues, so caring for the poor, vulnerable, marginalized, how much uh, or how big of a role that should play within Christian faith and practice. Um, you know, some people think that that that's uh, you know. Uh, kind of a identifying marker of, of Christianity is, you know, that action. Whereas others would say, uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's an outworking, but the Christian church is here to, you know, spread the the gospel of Jesus and nobody else does that. There's lots of other organizations who do social, you know, uh, they do social good in the world, but the church is only here, you know, to spread the gospel. Uh, so I guess, um, yeah, I guess, what would you say as far as, uh, that role of social, uh, paying attention to social issues within uh, evangelical churches or just the Christian church in general? Well, I just, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't define it as social issues. Um, sure. I, I would, uh, I would define this in terms of discipleship. So again, come back to the, um, the, the personal aspect. There are people who will say, well, uh, you shouldn't talk about obedience uh, to Christ because obedience to Christ is legalism, and that's going to distract you from the gospel. Sure. Well, of course it is. Mm. If what you're saying is uh, be obedient to Christ and then you receive uh, the gospel, that mm. is legalism. But it's not legalism to say, uh, as a follower of Christ, here is how you live. Uh, so you, you can't say, mm. my sex life is, is of no, that's not your business. 
Yeah, it, it is your business if you're part of the body of Christ. It is certainly your business if you're Jesus. And you, you can't say uh, the way that I treat uh, the poor and the vulnerable when that is repeatedly uh, emphasized, not only throughout all of all of the Old mm-hmm. Testament prophets, but repeated by Jesus himself as early as his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, uh, when not only does he, you know, people can uh, can say, well, we can spiritualize away the definition of his anointing in terms of bringing good news to the poor, uh, but you can't spiritualize away the way that Jesus then turns around and says, um, the, the, the word of God came to the widow of Zarephath when there were many widows mm-hmm. in Israel. And again, I mean, he's, he's going in, he's taking that sense of um, of a, a flawed understanding of who we are and showing them how that is not consistent with, uh, with the gospel that he's bringing. Mm. So, I mean, ultimately what we're asking people, we're, we're seeking to do is a number of things. I mean, one of those things is the church is a manifestation of the kingdom of God, uh, a, a broken, you know, really initiatory signpost, mm-hmm. but toward the kingdom of God which means we embody what that life in Christ uh, looks like, uh, which is why the apostles were concerned, for instance, when the Greek widows aren't being uh, fed in, in, uh, in Acts 6. And then, uh, and then also what we're doing is preparing people um, for judgment, which means you're saying to Christians, here is, here is what you will be giving an account of when you stand before Christ. Mm-hmm. And we're saying to the outside world, here's, as Carl Henry used to put it, the criteria by which God is going to judge humanity and nations. Mm-hmm. And so that is why James chapter five, um, speaking in complete continuity with, um, with the Old Testament prophets and with the Psalms, mm-hmm. is saying um, that the way that you're treating the 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 people who are working on your land is an issue for God mm. and repent. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's simply a matter of whether or not we think that the Bible actually is the word of God and that all scripture is God breathed and useful. Mm. If that's the case, then that means that God saying how you treat the, the widows and the orphans and the sojourners and the poor, um, that that matters or it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it does matter. Yeah. So I, I think that that's not the, I think that the, um, the sort of, uh, oh, well, if we, if we, um, this sort of artificial division in a way the Bible never does between the personal and the social. I mean, you go, what Amos is doing is, uh, talking about the treatment of the poor and sexual immorality right mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So does Malachi, so does Isaiah, so does Jeremiah, so does Jesus, so does Paul. Uh, so it's not that division. And often when when people are saying, um, well, uh, you know, th- this is a distraction, somebody else can do that. I mean, we've, heard, we've all heard that before. Mm-hmm. I've heard, I heard that uh, really early on in my ministry when a young woman said to me, here's the deal I want. I want to sleep with my boyfriend, smoke a little bit of weed, get drunk on Saturdays and go to heaven. Okay. Well, that's the deal everybody wants, but that's not what, that's not what Jesus's call to you is. Uh, It's, it's something else. That doesn't mean 
just like when it comes to obedience uh, at the personal level, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily all going to agree on everything about what that looks like. Mm. Uh, and we, we are going to have some d- uh, differences there. And just like with the particular calling of a person, some congregations are going to be gifted uh, in unique ways. So a, a, there's a, a congregation that is saying, Bible says to us to care for the vulnerable. We're caring for foster kids in our community. Another congregation that wouldn't be equipped to care for for foster kids, but they are able to care for the homeless in their community, mm-hmm. or uh, or they're able to care for the elderly and the shut-in. I mean, I think that that it's it's often a diversity of gifts as to how we do this. Sure, but it's not an optional command mm-hmm. to us. Sure, yeah. Well, I think sometimes there is this dichotomy that people have in their mind where either Christianity is about like personal piety and personal righteousness or uh, like activism, you know, in, in the social realm. So you're saying yeah, those he, two things are are basically one thing. Yeah. And, and uh, because, I mean, you think about in Luke 3, you have, uh, you have the tax collectors and the soldiers who are being uh, baptized by John coming up and saying, well, what do we do now as tax collectors and as soldiers? Mm. Is that a, a question of personal discipleship? Mm. Or is that a question of social responsibility? Right. Well, it's mm. both. Yeah. Because in their personal lives, they have a responsibility to other people. So uh, John is able to say to them, don't extort people, don't defraud people. Mm. Uh, l- sure. live, your, live your life out with integrity, including in this, uh, in this mm. way. Well, that's that's the case for for all of us. And so, uh, if if someone says, "Well, does the Bible uh, tell me how to be a banker?" Uh, to, well, it kind of depends. Are you a banker? And if so, what are you asking? Are you asking me? Uh, you know, I tend to skim some off the top. And um, what does that have to do with the fact that I'm um, head of our evangelism ministry? Well, it has quite a bit to do with that. Uh, and it doesn't mean that, therefore, that means that the Bible is giving you um, a blueprint for how to how to do the Federal Reserve System. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the, sure. so, so sometimes, but usually what you have are, are, is not so much people that are emphasizing individual piety versus social responsibility. They, they often think they're doing that. Mm-hmm. But usually what they're doing is instead just deciding what aspects of uh, personal piety and what aspects of social uh, responsibility that they are going to listen to and Mm. obey. So you can have uh, the person who will say, you know, if we talk about what happened with this shooting uh, of an unarmed African-American man in my community right now, that's politics that's diverting us from our, our focus. But when we're talking about abortion, uh, that's not uh, d- diverting us from. Well, of course it's not. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, right. there's a way to there's a way to protect oneself from personal obedience through social activism. Mm. There, there are people who will say, you know, how dare you talk about uh, God's uh, plan for my sexual life? Uh, when, you know, I, I'm serving the poor, I'm doing all of those things. And there's a way to protect one's, uh, oneself from the teachings of Scripture on the what we would call justice questions 
through a kind of uh, kind of retreat into a personal piety. Mm. But we're called to follow Jesus, mm. and, and that means we we do what what uh, where he. Uh, what he says we will do, where he sends we will go, mm. as the mm. old uh, trust and obey mm. him puts it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Just one one final question, just to round round this off, and it's been super helpful this discussion. Um, we have you know lay people, just general Christians who are listening to our podcast. We've got pastors who are in church uh, ministry leadership on a podcast. You know, for both of those you know contexts. How can we recover, or is it possible to recover the kind of witness early evangelicals like you know William Wilberforce had in our own social and political climate? Uh, what well, what I would say is something similar to uh, somebody who might say, uh, "How do I fix a climate change?" And I would say, "Clean up, clean up your neighborhood." Uh, you, you, you can't fix climate change by yourself, you know, and you know, what, whatever you think about climate change, that that's a big, big issue that you can't tackle. But what you can do is to be the kind of person who's doing the work in front of you. And that actually does matter and have implications for everything else. So I would say, don't wait for, um, the church to start doing the right thing, start doing the right thing. And sometimes what you're going to find is that um, is that sometimes people just haven't had a model for what to do. So, you know, working in orphan care and adoption for all these years, I would sometimes have people who would say, our church just doesn't get it when it comes to James 127 and the, the, the call to care for the orphans. And in a lot of those situations, it wasn't that the church didn't get it or the church wasn't obedient. They didn't think about it. They didn't know what to do until someone came in and started uh, caring for orphans and vulnerable women and uh, pregnant teenage women and others in their, in their community. And then they're able to say, oh, well, here's, here's a way I can do that. And so I would say just be obedient and, and do, the, do the, the ministry that, that God's called us to do and specifically in terms of the way that God has gifted you and and called you, do that, and that matters. That's how we change this. Man, I, that's I think great. that's a great place to. Yeah, thank you very much, end. Dr. Moore. Yeah. All right, thanks for having me. Yes. Um, yeah. Is there any place uh, that our listeners can find um, any of the the things that you're involved in, uh, like a website? Uh, yeah, if you wanna wanna let them know, that'd be great. Uh, just they can go to russellmore.com or they can go to christianitytoday.com. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we really appreciated you on. Honestly, just an enlightening conversation. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Take care. We want to thank Dr. Moore again for for joining us. It was a really enlightening, really helpful conversation. And hopefully it was helpful uh, for you, uh, our dear listeners. Yeah, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Patreon. Uh, It's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew. Uh, And if you can't support us financially, please give us a good rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, uh, and that will help others find our podcast. Also, please comment and ask questions. We are going to shoot to have a um, a question and response uh, episode at the end of the season. We've got uh, one 
I think one episode left before the possible additional question and response episode. So email us or text us or, or call us uh, with your questions. Again, you can leave us a voice message uh, at, or text message at 312-725-2995. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For questions from the Pew, I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time.